Hello, uh, I'm, uh, I'm Adam with the Grox uh, Science Show, and I'm talking with Christy Ashwanden. Uh, she's the lead writer for uh, 538's science section, and I'm here to talk with her about a recent article that she wrote uh, called You Can't Trust What You Read About Nutrition. So, Christy, thank you for talking with us. Thanks for having me. Um, so, uh, first, I just want to, can you tell me a little bit about what, uh, what your article is about? Sure. The article is about um, nutrition research. Uh, specifically, it's about um, some problems that we found with the way that these these studies are done and, and some of the methodology that, that makes a lot of the studies and their conclusions suspect. What, what I really liked about this article is that rather than just pointing out, uh, you know, that there can be discrepancies in uh, nutrition research articles that, you know, some studies, for example, say that, you know, vitamin D is really important or that, you know, dairy is really important. Some will say the exact opposite and, you know, just sort of saying, oh, you know, science doesn't know what it's talking about. You really um, try to prove your point by actually doing a little bit of a study sort of yourself. Uh, can you tell me a little, so explain to me a little bit about what you did. Sure. So I guess I should just start start by backing up a little bit and talking about this fundamental problem, and that is um, when we're we're trying to do studies looking at the you know link, looking for links between specific foods or ways of eating and disease outcomes, health effects, etc. Uh, you have to start by knowing what it is that people are eating, and this is this is the big challenge actually. And if you think about how hard it is for people to lose weight, it, it maybe makes sense. You know, it's really hard for people to a change what it is that they're eating, but also to keep track of it. Um, people are not very good at remembering what they ate. They're not very good at tracking it. We're not very good at estimating or knowing portion sizes, etc. And so, let's say you're interested in a specific food and, an, and a, a disease outcome. So maybe you think that a particular vegetable, or even just a particular type of vegetable, um, might be linked to cancer. Maybe you think it is protective of cancer. Let's say. So how would you study this? So if you're doing a drug study, the, the sort of gold standard here is a randomized clinical trial. So what you do is you take a big group of people, you divide them into two groups, and you randomly and blindly assign half of them to get the drug and half of them to get a placebo. No one knows who's getting what until the end, and you sort of look to see what the outcomes are. Well, if you're studying food, you really can't do this. First of all, um, you, know, it's, you can't really do a blinded study showing, you know, where some people are eating carrots and the others aren't. Like, it's really hard to have, you can't really have a placebo carrot, right? Yeah. So that, that's the first problem. But it goes beyond that. So it's not just that. It's that studies that you're doing with drugs, you're usually expecting that whatever effect it's going to happen will, will happen pretty fast. So it's something that you can see in you know, a relatively short study. The problem with nutrition is that the effects that we're looking for and that we're expecting are things that you're going to see over a very long period of time. So I don't think any reasonable person thinks that, you know, eating a few carrots will then prevent you from getting cancer the next day or something, right? And, and most of these diseases and things that we're interested in um, take a long time to develop. Um, you know, for instance, we know that smoking um, is linked to, to cancer, um, but no one gets cancer after smoking their first cigarette, right? It takes time and not everyone who smokes get cancer, gets cancer, you know, it's a subgroup, even though the effect is pretty large. And so what we're up against here is that you can't, you can't do the kind of gold standard study that you would do, which is, you know, giving one group the thing and the other group not the thing. And so what you have to do is go to people, take 
take people into groups and ask them what it is that they're eating and then look for the effects based on that. But that's where we run into this problem, right? Like people aren't very good at remembering what they ate. Um, it's hard to measure, et cetera. And so the way this is done in most nutrition studies is with something, a tool called the food frequency questionnaire. And what it is, is a very detailed questionnaire that asks things like, you know, a typical question might say, um, how often do you eat carrots? Um, you know, how often over the last six months did you eat carrots? You know, once a week, twice a week, four times a week, et cetera. And then when you ate carrots, how, how large was your serving size? How much, how many carrots did you eat when you ate carrots? Um, you know, and so the problem here again is, you know, what's a carrot? Is it a, one of those little baby carrots? Is it a large carrot? You know, you might, you might put your answer into cups or ounces or something like that, but that's not how we usually think about it when we're consuming the food. And so it's just very difficult to get accurate answers. Yeah, because you, you've got something where, you, if you, especially if you ask someone and they weren't thinking about it beforehand and they're not someone that's really diligent about measuring out their, their portions, then how are they going to know, like, what's a portion for a carrot? You'd have to let everyone know well in advance, and then you're also relying on people to actually keep track of this, every, you know, every day on a very routine basis. That's right. And, you know... <clears throat> There's another tool that's that's frequently used that's the 24-hour food recall. And what this is is a similar sort of uh, survey, but here you're asking someone to recall, you know, in exact detail what they ate for the past 24 hours. And when this is used in research, they will have, you know, researchers sit down with the person and ask them very detailed questions. You know, they have some techniques that they can use to help people remember. And, you know, if you said, well, I had oatmeal, they'll say how much, and you'll say a bowl, and they'll say, well, how big was the bowl? And they'll sort of walk you through and help you at least be much more accurate. And so that's pretty good. You know, you can't, it's hard to do something like that with thousands of people, which is, you know, the sort of group size you need to find um, effects here. But the other problem is, you know, you're just looking at what that person ate for the last 24 hours. And what you're really interested in is what they eat on a regular basis. And that's why the food frequency questionnaire is so often used. And um, oftentimes they will use a 24-hour food diary or food recall to sort of verify the food frequency questionnaire. But there again, you're sort of using one memory-based method to verify another. So it's sort of like, well, if you take two inaccurate measurements, you know, what are you really learning? Yeah, you're like, well, but, you know, I'm spot-checking one with the other. But, of course, you still run into the same problem. Is what if that, that day was an atypical day or... Or if you bump up, if you if you bump up, you're like, well, I really ate pretty healthy. You overestimate right. your salad, exactly, ju just to make it sound better for yourself. I I thought it was interesting looking at your article. You talked about um, how based on the the food frequency questionnaire, the disparity between what you ate um, and like the quantity that you it appeared to be eating and how much everyone else was. Um, that there was a big difference just in terms of like the caloric intake. It looked like from your. That's right. So um, I took the food, food frequency questionnaire. A couple of my colleagues at 538 also took it. We also enlisted some readers to take it. I'll get to that in a minute. But, but me and the other two 538 folks, um, we did two things. We took the food frequency questionnaire, and then we also kept the food diary for a week where we did our best to really you know, document in as much detail as we could what it was we were eating. And then what we did, um, the food frequency questionnaire will sort of spit out a bunch of data about what you're eating, what, how much of the nutrients you're getting, what your top sources of calories are, what your normal caloric intake is. And um, then with our food diary, we sort of uh, 
analyzed the same sorts of things. And what we found was there was a pretty big disparity. Mine was actually the largest um, between what the food frequency questionnaire said I was eating and what the food diary said I was eating. Um, which one is correct? I couldn't tell you. It's really, it's really hard <laughs> to know. Um, I probably don't trust either one of them entirely. Um, but I think it just points to the problems, you know, inherent in this. And it's not that, you know, I want to be clear that it's not that researchers are being dishonest. They're not being dishonest. It's not that they are trying to commit fraud or that they're being sloppy. It's that this is a really inherently difficult problem. And this is sort of the best we have right now. But a lot of people are arguing that it's just not good enough and we shouldn't be, you know, giving advice or making policies based on it. Well, yeah, it's really difficult because I feel I feel like that for nutrition research, it just it's sort of what comes with the territory. You can't you can't have standardized trials where you say, okay, I'm going to take a group of people and I'm going to dictate exactly what your diet is for years um, in order right. to kind of see the effects that you're looking for. That's right. And in fact, when they've tried to do things like that, there was one study with nurses, I believe it was, where they did try to do something like this, where they assigned people um, at random to eat one way or another. And at this time, they were they were trying to study low-fat diet. And what they found is adherence was very low. And so in the end, um, they didn't really find a difference, but it may be because, you know, the people that were supposed to eat low fat weren't, and then the other people weren't, you know, maybe eating how they were supposed to. So the two groups were sort of converging and they weren't that dissimilar. And again, if you're trying to point to like a particular food or even a class of food, like say dairy or meat or something like that, it can be really difficult to find effects if the differences between the groups is not, is not that big. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think one of the other things that I thought was interesting was, uh, take when you, uh, used your food frequency questionnaires and you gave them out to readers and started looking for correlations and you had some really strong and really interesting correlations, some of which I thought were, um, you know, sort of reasonable, like that, you know, you could make a case that it, it's not shocking that, uh, someone that consumes a lot of energy drinks also smokes more or, right. that, or that people that drink a lot of beer also tend to smoke more often. That's why, you know, even people that drink a lot of coffee owning cats, eh, you know, I can, I can kind of see that, but then some of them, um, are just, are just, you know, completely out there and you can say, well, boy, I could really, I could make a case for this or, you know, you could say this is what the numbers are supporting. Uh, but, but how on earth would you ever expect this to, to be linked to anything? Um, right. And the point of this, the point of doing this, what we were really trying to show is that it's very, very easy to find associations using this technique. So the food frequency questionnaire, it spits out an enormous number of variables. The one that we took um, produced over a thousand variables. And these are things against which you can compare whatever it is you're looking at. And so in our case, we asked, we had 26 characteristics that we asked about. Um, things like, you know, was your SAT score higher for math or for verbal? Have you had a weird rash in the past year? Do you believe that the movie Crash begin, uh, deserved to win Best Picture? You know, do you have an innie or an outie belly button? Things that we really did not expect to have a causal relationship with with these foods, right? But by comparing them, you know, so you take more than a thousand variables, compare them to 26 possible characteristics that you're interested in. This allowed us to do almost 28,000 regressions. And so as a result of this, um, just, just by using the standard p-value of 0.05 as your, your cutoff for statistical significance, that guarantees that we're going to have um, over 1,300 false positives. 
that's a lot of false positives, yeah. right? And those are just the ones we know about. Then there are, you know, that's just one problem. The other problem is that you may find associations that are real, but they're not causal. And so, you know, we're doing these nutrition studies. We're not so interested in like, you know, people who are healthier tend to eat things that they perceive to be healthier, right? Like that may be fine, but so we, we really want to know what foods can we tell people to eat to make them healthier. And so if what you're finding is really, well, here are the, the kinds of foods that healthy people like to eat anyway, but if it's not causal, then you're not really, you're not helping anyone, right? Um, so I'll just give you an example. You know, let's say uh, one of my favorite associations that we found was that potato chips was linked to higher uh, SAT math scores. And so if you were advising high school students who were going to take the SAT, you know, how, how to get a better math score, you know, telling them to eat potato chips is probably not going to help. It's not reasonable, right? And yet this is the kind of advice that regularly and routinely comes out of these nutrition studies. You know, there was just uh, one about a week or two ago um, associating blueberries with a lower risk of erectile dysfunction in men, you know, and so, you know, it would, but it would be ridiculous to tell men, you know, that are concerned about this problem to eat blueberries and expect that that's going to solve things, right? Yeah. Although, I mean, there, there'd be people, I mean, I'm sure that if you dug into the literature you could you could try to find that well you could say well they have, they're rich in antioxidants and you know this improves blood flow but i mean that's the thing is you're just kind of you you know at best you'd be waving your hands I, I was actually kind of disappointed that you didn't go with the uh you know raise your sat math score using this one weird trick route the that you often see in like all the ads or you know right uh, yeah, because because I feel like that's you know it's a it's a very similar kind of thing. You you take a result and you can you can kind of twist it to however you want. And I think the difficulty with these food with these food frequency questionnaires is because you have so many variables and you you know because you can do so many regressions and do so many correlations that that you get a lot of stuff that's meaningless and that you could probably have found some similarly interesting correlations if you just asked uh, a bunch of readers to say pick a series of pick a series of numbers between one and fifty, right. and that if you you know if you had enough people you could say man people people that smoke really like the number twenty four and and you know mm -hmm. and you could be like so if you want to stop smoking avoid the number twenty four, um, and it 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 would similar I mean it'd be just kind of you know ridiculous stuff. That's right. Yeah. Um, but but then again I mean that unfortunately this is kind of the the state of where nutrition research comes in. And, and I think actually, I, I read an interesting article on CNN that was just kind of going through a history of research about artificial sweeteners. Mm -hmm. And they, and this is, you know, people that were using mouse models. And so they were trying to be really controlled. And they found that you got really different results from one year to the next, just based on how the experiments were run. And mm -hmm. I think that this is, this is what makes it really difficult to, to come up with good information for for anything like this and you especially when you can generate all these things and i um it reminded me of another article you wrote about having people if they were trying to predict which outcomes were uh could be replicated to have them bet on it mm -hmm. because i feel mm -hmm. like a lot of these things you would say boy i bet i could do this again i get entirely different results and you would almost have to have smart people say well this one really makes sense Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think one of the ideas behind those betting markets um, and prediction markets looking at, you know, trying to predict which studies would replicate is this idea that there's sort of untapped knowledge that people have. And if you really force them to put their money where their mouth is, um, they may, you know, access or, or have sort of, um, you know, other information that, that 
can guide them and you know, help them find the right answer. This is not to say that, you know, all we need to do to figure out which studies are reliable, which aren't, is, you know, have people bet on them. But it's, it seems to be a useful, a useful strategy. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's at least another way of taking a look at it. But it's, uh, it's, it's still a, a it, yeah, I mean, obviously, you can't make everything be, uh, you, you can't replace peer reviewing with betting markets. Um, right. I, I, I also thought that was, that was uh, interesting. And so um, one, one of the things that I think people often use when you have kind of inconsistent studies is uh, trying to do meta-analyses. And I think you, you touch on this a little bit uh, a little bit later in the article, talking about uh, the, like, taking a look at a meta-analysis of different foods that, um, that, you, that you picked or that were, that were picked. Yeah, so this came, we had a chart with the study, um, and this these data came from uh, a study by John Ioannidis at uh, Stanford and another colleague of his. They actually went through, they, they took sort of randomly from a cookbook some common food ingredients, and then they checked the literature to see um, whether they had any, any studies looking at these foods' relationship to cancer, whether it lowers the risk or increases the risk. And what they found is that um, most of these these common foods, so some of them were uh, beef, potatoes, cheese, eggs, uh, wine was another one. And what you see is that there are data showing both both things. You know, mm-hmm. these studies show it lowers the risk. These show that it increases the risk. And so, you know, what can you really believe? And I think the takeaway here is that probably some of these effects aren't real. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they exist, they're probably pretty small. That's another thing, you know, that we tend to sort of over overestimate or overplay the effect sizes here. And this is often done when the the studies are reported in the media and even in the papers themselves. Um, There will be an emphasis on relative risks instead of absolute risks. So it will say, you know, the group that ate the most tomatoes had this risk of cancer compared to the group that ate the least tomatoes, which had this and that, that difference may sound very big, but at the end of the day, the individual, you know, the risk for either of the groups of getting the cancer may be still quite low. And so even though the relative risks may look big, you know, if, if you had uh, one in 10,000 people get the disease versus two in in 10,000, that's a doubling of risk, right? From one group to the other, but in absolute terms, it's almost meaningless. Yeah. And and so I think that's, and and that is something because if you, if you just took a look at the absolute risks, they would be really not very exciting to report a lot of the time. Um, so you you have to, you know, I think a lot of people do go with that, um, but it, it does it does wind up being very misleading. And it's something that I that with you know a a well done like drug record study that they do tend to to worry about. Um, but yeah, with something that especially that gets reported upon in the media, it's easy to seize upon something simple and uh, just say, okay, well, it's, you know, 20 times the risk of this thing happening, right. even, if, even if it's almost never going to happen. That's right. That's right. So, I mean, I, I think this was, this was a really interesting art because you examined, I think, a lot of different uh, of the obstacles that come up with uh, trying to do nutrition research. And I mm-hmm. think uh, kind of the overall uh, conclusion, if you wanted to make one, is that, you know, it, it's, it's probably very difficult to say that one thing or the other really has that much of an effect on your body and that, I mean, you can take a look, there's people with vastly different diets throughout the world and, you know, yet entire cultures can, sur- can survive. 
you know, there's people that don't get to eat, you know, tons of potato chips that have just fine math scores. And, uh, um, or that people, you know, some people eat primarily fruits and vegetables. Some, you know, some groups eat much less. And uh, overall, I, I think there's no like single one thing that you can say, oh, this, this will, this will be the cure for everything. That's right. You know, my grandparents were Mennonite wheat farmers and they, you know, for the last many decades of their lives, they ate a bowl of ice cream before bed every night. They both lived well and healthy into their 90s. And so, you know, I could say, oh, it's the ice cream diet, you know, eat ice cream before bed and you'll live a long, healthy life. But, you know, there's just no magic. You know, we're looking for the magic cure, the magic food. And I don't think it exists, sadly. Yeah. Which is a shame because I think life would be great if I could say, well, if I just eat enough onions, you know, right. then, then I'm then I'm good, I'm set. But I think I think the overall point is that yeah, if you try to if you just try to pick one particular thing, there's no there's no single route. It's just you know you have to kind of go at an overall like try to eat healthy. And you know there's lots of different diets that work well. Um, you know you can eat low fat, you can eat low carb, you can try ketogenic, you can try paleo. And the important thing is just to have a good mix. And to not to not rely on any one thing to save you. I think that's right. You know, I think it's very human nature to want, you know, we all want to cheat death. Mm-hmm. And so we're looking for the thing that we can do. And food is something that we can control. You know, it's the one thing we're putting it in our body. We can decide what's what's going to happen and which foods we're going to eat. But, you know, our bodies are pretty good at telling us, you know, if we feel good or we feel bad eating certain foods. And there's probably a lot of individual um, variety here. You know, some people, you know, may do better on some foods than others. That That's fine. Um, but the idea that there's a magic uh, recipe or a particular way of eating that's going to solve everything, I, I think that we just haven't we haven't shown that. Now, that said, I don't want to imply that like all nutrition research is just completely unreliable and we don't know anything. You know, there are certain patterns of eating that seem good. We know that um, less processed foods are generally better than more processed foods. Um, you know, foods with uh, dense nutrients seem to be better than those, you know, that are just empty calories, et cetera. Yeah. But, you know, even sometimes, you know, empty calories can be really good. I'm a runner and, you know, after I do a, a really long run or a marathon or something, you know, drinking a sugary drink is probably a perfectly healthy, reasonable thing for me to do, right? Yeah, <laughs> so, well, no, because your body's depleted of, of sugar and energy. And so it's, right. yeah. Um, and I think, I think your point that, you know, that, there's some things that, yes, overall are probably, you know, you don't want to eat foods most likely that are really high in saturated fat and cholesterol because overall that's probably not good for you. But saying, well, gee, just avoid beef, avoid beef and you're fine is is probably is overstating it. And so you don't want to you don't want to try to make anything more important than it really is. That's right. That's right. And and we just don't have uh, data to the you know degree of detail that we would need to be able to say that this particular you know this particular variety of this food you know like full fat versus non-fat dairy or even you know some of the differences between different types of fat I think um, that a lot of that stuff is probably overstated as well um, yeah I think at the end of the day you know just just the kind of advice that your grandmother gave you is probably pretty good you know yeah just you know be smart about it right right. All right. Um, well, thank you very much for talking with us. I thought it was a really interesting article, and it's been great getting to share your insights with uh, our listeners.